Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Gay With God podcast, a safe place for us to share our stories and support one another. How long did we know? What challenges did we face? Did we lose our faith? When did we find our way back home? Or are we still searching? The stories you hear on this podcast will melt your heart and strengthen your belief that in God, all things are possible and you can be authentically gay with the God of your understanding. I'm your host, Midge Noble, and I am very honored that you are here. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Gay With God podcast. I have another great guest for you this week, and her name is Reverend Hillary Taylor. She is an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church with orders in the Mountain Sky Conference, which covers Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming. A graduate from Furman University and Candler School of Theology, presently serves as the Interim Executive Director for South Carolinians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, SCADP. When she is not thinking about restorative justice, conflict transformation, and fresh expressions of ministry for the local church, she loves running with her dog Lola, watching Netflix with her cat Connor, and experiencing the outdoors any way she can. For more information about Hillary's work, go to www.scadp.org, and I'll have that on the show page for you guys later uh, this afternoon. So, everybody, I'm excited to say that we have Reverend Hillary in the house, and we're so so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mitch. It's good to be with you. Oh, you are welcome. So uh, you and I met at the Wild Goose Festival uh, mm-hmm. this past year. And if, if anyone has not ever been to the Wild Goose Festival, you've got to you've got to look that up. Just look up Wild Goose Festival and you will find it. And it's such a, an amazing time. Um, understand that it's hot. <laughs> it's in July <laughs> for some reason where I, I don't understand. But even though I hate to be hot and I don't like hot weather, I go now every time because I just love the community and I love meeting people like Reverend Hillary. And I never would have met you ever had we not uh, seen each other at the Wild Goose Festival. So anyway, please look that up. That's just a side note. Uh, but I want to get into the show for today. Tell us your story. Yeah, so it's a, it's a fun one. Um, so I'm from South Carolina. I'm from the town of Columbia, which Mm. is the capital. And I grew up, you know, like a lot of people with a a pretty typical family. Um, my parents, uh, you know, uh, did get a divorce when I was about six or seven. So, um, Mm. that is also a pretty common story for people about my age, but yeah. And, um, kind of around the age of five or six is when I realized that, oh, I, uh, I, I don't like boys like I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually the first time I've actually ever sort of told this story on a cool. podcast. So cool. thank you for being a, a place to amplify those voices. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, yeah. So uh, I had a friend who had some older sisters and, you know, shared with her that I had a crush on this girl in, in my class. And my friend mm-hmm. said, oh, well, that means you're gay. And, you know, I, I'm the oldest in my family. Um, and I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, oh, it means you like girls. And so, you know, I was getting some real, you know, like information from, from a peer uh, who knew more than me because I didn't have any kind of access to that stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, or to those conversations, those just weren't conversations in my house. 
and uh, was sort of like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And learned very quickly that that was not really something that uh, was good to be, was sort of frowned upon. Gay did uh, not mean that you like girls, it means happy, right? Uh, um, so those are sort of the things that I internalized and, um, you know, then kind of kept a lot of that part of myself uh, kind of buried, but, you know, that's always kind of on the surface whenever you try to like, you know, uh, not have something come up. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, life continues. And, um, as I grow older, um, and sort of in the midst of my parents splitting up, um, mm. there begins to be some pretty significant kinds of family traumas that surface. Mm. Um, my mom was not in a, uh, a healthy place in, in that part of her life in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, I ended up going to live with my dad and my stepmom after a lot of, um, difficult sorts of family dynamics mm. with my mom, um, and trying to wrestle, you know, trying to, uh, after lots of interventions from her family as well. Um, so, I don't really talk about this on, on a public platform necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, usually have to be a little bit kind of evasive on the details. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I don't have all the the permissions to share all the. Absolutely. Ideas. Absolutely. But, but suffice to say there was family trauma, there was relational rift and I ended up going, um, uh, needing to move in with my dad and my stepmom. Mm-hmm. And so my stepmom is an incredible person who really rose to the occasion of making sure that my sisters and I were cared for and loved was also somebody who really is a, is a deep person of faith and, and kind of brought that into our family dynamic where it didn't really exist before. My stepmom is a Methodist person and she grew up at Shandon United Methodist church in Columbia, South Carolina. And when she and my dad started dating after my parents got divorced, um, she said, you know what, uh, if you're going to date me, and she also was coming out of her own uh, divorce as well. Um, She and my dad were divorcing their partners at the, around the same time for, Mm -hmm. you know, they were not connected sort of before their divorces, but you know, uh, the, the, the bonds of trauma, right? That's (laughs) That's right. They became introduced and how they got to know each other. And, and then began to, to feel attracted to one another. And my stepmom said, listen here, bud, uh, if you're going to be dating me, then you're going to go to church with me and you're going to bring your daughters with me when they come to be with you every other weekend, because I want this to be the place where our family has roots. And then when, um, when my dad got custody of my sisters and I, we, um, we did continue to go to church and the church really became this place where, um, where my family could just simply come and exist and people could just hold space with us and they wouldn't Mm -hmm. try to pry into our pain. They simply just sort of held us and Mm -hmm. they said, we love you and Mm -hmm. God loves you. And we're going to be here until you can internalize that for yourself. Wow. And that's not something that happens in every church, unfortunately. I wish it did. Mm-hmm. And so I'm extremely grateful for my church, which has has had a history of being a safe place for for people and for, for children, especially who have mm-hmm. different family circumstances. 
So I threw myself into the youth group. I became a small group Bible study leader for, I think, five years or so. I was involved in every mission project and mission projects became a, a super important part for me and my life uh, because it was a way where I could repair my own sense of self, even as I was helping people rebuild their, mm -hmm. their sense of home and their sense of safety. Mm -hmm. And that was a really profound and beautiful thing for me in the South Carolina Methodist conference. There exists this really lovely kind of summer mission project system called Salkahatchee Summer Service. It's based off of the Appalachian Service Project. And so uh -huh. it's these different week-long mission camps that happen all throughout the summer in different places across the state. And each place has kind of its own culture, depending on which people come every summer. And some people come some summers and some people don't. And depending on the houses. And it's this really lovely experiment in short-term missions and mm. also short-term community building, which really saved my life in a lot of ways. Wow. Because uh, I still wasn't in a place to really wrestle with my own sexual orientation mm. and, uh, you know, began to bleed in other ways, right? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Began to feel a, a sense of not really connecting and not feeling like I was, you know, maybe all the way of who I exactly was and, you know, uh, also had to switch schools a little bit whenever I did switch households. Mm -hmm. So that aided in a sense of isolation and probably stymied some of my own explorations of mm -hmm. personal identity and who I was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but continue to be grateful for the church because it really saved my life mm -hmm. and it really provided a place for me to land, especially as I dealt with different levels of depression, mm -hmm. especially as I dealt with feeling extremely isolated and lonely. Mm -hmm. And where I didn't have a lot of peer kind of friendships because I, I was a parentified, or a parentified child in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. the church was full of people who took me seriously. Mm -hmm. and were able to give me resources for the deep theological questions I had as a, a young adolescent, right? Mm -hmm. The questions of why do bad things happen to people who've done nothing wrong? Mm -hmm. And why is there evil? And is God actually present there for me? And what is the role of, yeah, the church and people? And how do we share and engage in mission and ministry responsibly and how do we love people genuinely who are different from one from from us mm -hmm. and how do we pay attention to evil and injustice and oppression and i became really concerned about injustices a lot because of what i saw in mission and ministry mm -hmm. So I go to college and all of those things deepen and i become very involved in lots of different things I become involved in uh, the Methodist Campus Ministry Group. There uh, is a chaplain's uh, department that has a pre-ministry scholarship program. I'm able to intern with different nonprofits every year and also the chaplain's office. So I helped create an interfaith campus ministry group, which still exists to this day. So that's pretty Yay. exciting. Years later. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, <laughs> 
I become very involved in different justice things. I start studying psychology and become a poverty studies minor and just begin this intersectional kind of study of how the environment affects our personalities mm. and how our personalities engage with the world and how religion pay and religion and spirituality and faith play into all of that. Mm. Amidst all of that, I study abroad in Southern Africa for nine weeks. This was my junior year. And that's when a lot of my own kind of deconstruction really happens. I felt a call to ministry at the age of 13 because of my intense uh, and profound participation in ministry and mission with my home church. And I go and I study in South Africa and Namibia and Botswana on this traveling seminar with professors who are incredible and they show me the history of South Africa and apartheid, right? Which mirrors so much of the racial injustices here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I learn about neoliberalism and the ways that capitalism has really not just stymied the economic growth of Southern Africa, but the ways that it continues to keep it underdeveloped I learned about human development and poverty, especially for children. And I learned about medical sociology and global health inequalities and HIV and tuberculosis and malaria Mm. and the different government programs and sort of, you know, global programs that are supposed to help with these things that actually have exacerbated other issues Mm -hmm. and problems. And the ways that different cultures and governments have tried to solve each other's problems over the years and have also contributed to creating new ones because they're not attentive to all of the injustices that could be created. Mm -hmm. And I saw that the church aided in the process of colonizing so many places in the world, especially Southern Africa, where I was studying And I was really upset by that. And it kind of threw a wrench into my plans for mission and ministry because how I sort of wondered, how can I be a part of an organization Mm. that has created so much injustice? Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time trying to wrestle with that my senior year of college. At one point, I was talking to an alum of my college and university, and he told me, well, yeah, Uh, it does sound like you need to take a year off. That was what I was already planning. And he said, you know, there are lots of different service programs. There's a a list on this particular website. Why don't you go to that website and you'll be able to figure out which one exists. So I go to the website and lo and behold, I see a program for young adult missionaries in the United Methodist Church. And I paused because I I didn't know this program existed. And I was a pretty devout United Methodist. I should have, of all people, <laughs> known that it was a program like this that existed. And it was this program that really, the description of it really combined social justice and responsible evangelism in a way that I hadn't read or seen, mm. in a way that I was really searching for as I tried to figure out, do I actually want to be an ordained pastor in my tradition? Mm-hmm. So I applied and I got into the program. So after I graduated from college, I became a young adult missionary with the United Methodist Church. And interestingly enough, 
they sent me to South Africa for about a year and a half. And then they sent me to Miami for about a year and a half. It was a three year long program. You would spend a year and a half serving outside of your home country and a year and a half serving inside of your home country. When I lived in South Africa, I was working at a Methodist seminary called Seth Mokotimi Methodist Seminary. It's the only Methodist seminary in Southern Africa. So it serves six countries and it serves the the denomination, the Methodist Church of Southern Africa. Mm. And that was a really amazing place. I encountered all sorts of people on all walks of life. It's one of the most diverse places in uh, South Africa, especially. Arguably, maybe even Southern Africa. There were uh, over a dozen dozen languages spoken in the seminary. People coming as far as Mozambique. And it was just spectacular. People coming as far as Zambia as well. Uh, And I learned how to tend and befriend a lot of the pain that I was feeling Mm -hmm. as somebody who was a Christian, as somebody who is a descendant of colonizers here in the United States. My Mm. sixth great grandfather owned a plantation that Mm. actually encompassed the the city of Columbia and, you know, sold land to the city so that it could be built, had Mm -hmm. over 240 or about 240 enslaved persons Mm. in his possession. So wrestling with my own identity in a place with people who also had profound experiences wrestling with their own identities too was really helpful. I knew, I came to know a lot of anti-apartheid activists who were white and a lot of people who were engaged in the apartheid struggle who identified with all sorts of ethnic and racial backgrounds And they too were also wrestling with Christianity in different ways too. Um, A lot of people were wrestling with how do I, you know, claim to be a Christian when this identity has really harmed my culture? Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between my culture and my faith? Mm -hmm. And witnessing a lot of those conversations and talking with other white people in South Africa as they wrestled with their own whiteness was pretty impactful for me and allowed me to see, yeah, the church has done some really awful things. It's always done some really awful things. Mm -hmm. And also the church can truly be led by the spirit and Mm -hmm. it truly can be authentic in creating beloved community. And it truly can help fight injustice. One of the stories that I found most impactful was the story of Seth Mokotimi himself, the namesake of the seminary I worked for. Seth Mokotimi was a chaplain at one point to a small missions school. It was the mission school that actually educated Nelson Mandela when he was a child. Mm. And so Seth Mokotimi was an influence on Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, of course, would later become a political activist and then a political enemy of the state. And then he would be incarcerated for 27 years. And then he would be released and become the first president of South Africa post-apartheid. And Seth Mokotini, his chaplain in grade school, would go on to become the first black president of the Methodist Church of Southern Africa, the first black bishop of the denomination as a whole. 
And that was in response to a, a mass slaughter of people mm. in 1963. I believe it was the Sharpeville Massacre. So that was a, an incredible experience. Mm. The job that I did there was helping seminary students combine what they were learning in an academic setting and bring it out into field education. So I was helping to coordinate the field education sites and connecting people with their passions for ministry, figure out what they loved, what was really draining for them, help them unpack difficult situations. And then I came back to the United States and I worked as a financial coach for a year and a half. And as a financial coach, my job was to educate people about the U.S. credit system, help people find banking products that help them get where they wanted in terms of financial stability, help them achieve their financial goals, whether they wanted to buy a car or a house or pay off debt or have uh, an amount saved in their savings account. That was also an incredible experience because it was a way for me to wrestle with my own U.S. citizenship. And it introduced me to working with people who were returning citizens, people who mm. have criminal records. Mm -hmm. One of my first consistent clients was somebody who came out of prison. His brother had shot and killed somebody. And my client was the getaway vehicle. My client didn't know that his brother was going to do this. Mm -hmm. And his brother really just kind of uprooted his life. My client was somebody who was trying to be a social worker, loved his community, was working for a an after-school program, and then found his life upended by his brother's irresponsible actions and violence. And so he spent time in, in jail. He spent years in jail because he didn't want to testify against his brother and eventually had a plea deal after spending, again, years in jail. And then he could finally go into prison and have more restorative programs and not be kept in a cell by himself and then he got out on good behavior, but he still had uh, to be, he still had a parole officer. He still had to be intensely watched and he had to mark out his every move two weeks ahead of time. And if a parole officer ever tried to visit him in a place where he said he was going to be and he wasn't, he would end up right back in jail. Mm -hmm. So my job was to help him find financial stability when Working a job was so difficult because Florida at the time did not have a ban the box kind of law. Mm. He had to check every time for, uh, you know, whenever there was a job application that said, do you have a criminal record? Mm -hmm. And that was an automatic way for people to just throw away. His throw away. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And so that was a really important thing that got me interested in criminal justice reform and now prison abolition work because of all the ways that our prison system just doesn't restore people, it punishes people and it makes the, it makes it harder for them to experience restoration and transformation yeah. either yeah. when they're incarcerated and certainly beyond being incarcerated. So all of those experiences are, are stories in and of themselves. And then I go to seminary. I decide after these three years that yes, I do want to go to seminary. It's going to give me the tools that I want I still feel called to be a minister. I feel called to do a lot of things outside of the local church. I want to bring those things into the local church because I think that the local church has, has so much to offer people who are experiencing 
a kind of scarcity. There's so much abundance in the church and the church doesn't know what to do with that because the church uh-huh. doesn't have relationships with people who are always, it doesn't always have relationships with people in need. And when it does, it's often a very kind of tit for tat relationship. You need your light paid. We're going to give you money, but you can't contact us until a certain amount of time. And then maybe you can contact us again. Mm. It's a very sort of short thing. And it doesn't involve a lot of relationships that either make sure people are stable and secure and experience healing and wholeness, Mm -hmm. or if people can't experience that for different reasons, you know, at least gets them into a place of stability, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a place where where their needs are met with abundance and with love and care. So I go to seminary. I do chaplaincy work in a prison. It's where I begin to learn about anti-death penalty work because I was in a prison that housed somebody who was on death row for 18 years. Mm. And she was actually executed when I was serving as a chaplain at that prison. I never met that particular person. Her name was Kelly Gissendanner, but I knew a lot of people who knew her. And I was really moved by her story because she was somebody who conspired to kill her husband. She didn't actually murder her husband. It was her Mm -hmm. boyfriend who did that. Mm -hmm. And she did not get a plea deal that she wanted. She got a plea deal of life without a chance of parole. Her boyfriend got a plea deal of life with a chance of parole, <laughs> partially because he ratted her out. Oh. And yeah, no, everything oh. is bad. Everything is bad. And so she took her chances and did not have adequate representation. Mm. And she got the death penalty. Oh. Now, uh, our death penalty system is very political. And we often use it against women who society deems are bad mothers and certainly kelly admitted that she she had a lot of of trauma and she had an addiction problem and then in prison she became the exception to the rule she became somebody who was transformed she sobered up she became somebody who people loved and cared about and she became a kind of counselor for people who were suicidal were in the prison with her when people were suicidal the officers would actually take the suicidal uh incarcerated folks and they would place them in the cell right beside kelly she had a whole range to herself because she was the only woman on georgia's death row for a long time Mm. they would place the suicidal person next to kelly's cell and she would counsel them through the vents and she would say just these life-giving things to them. I know people who've been counseled by her and she would say, you would live and God is here for you and God loves you and God is going to be there for you and God wants you to live. And so she saved people's lives, right? And she also became a scholar of theology in her own right. There is a, 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 a theology of a certificate of theology that my seminary, Candler School of Theology, created for Lee Arendale Women's Prison. And through and and through special permissions, because she had such a good record in her time being incarcerated, they allowed her to take a class. And this one graduate student gave her a book called Theology of Hope by Jurgen Moltmann. 
Jürgen Moltmann is one of the most kind of prolific systematic theologians in Christianity. He specializes in the concept of Christian hope. And she developed a pen pal relationship with him, which is pretty remarkable. And he actually came and he spoke at her graduation from her certificate of theology wow. program. <laughs> and she got to meet him. Aww. And he was somebody who was reconciled with her children, which is was so hard. And I have actually spoken to one of her children. And her children uh, certainly testified to try and save her life. And despite all of these good things that she did, despite a former warden saying, yes, we will advocate for your clemency, she was still executed by the state of Georgia. Mm. So that was a, a really profound moment in my own life not just a, a person who is in, not just as a person who's in seminary, but a person who thinks deeply and theologically and wrestles with violence and what to do with people who are violent. And this was kind of in the wake, this was several months after the Mother Emanuel shooting mm. in Charleston. And so I was really wrestling with how do I deal with somebody like Dylan? I do believe that God is love and God loves all of us, but I really don't know how to love this person. Mm -hmm. And so Kelly's testimony and her life were kind of this space where I learned that, wow, yeah, nobody's beyond redemption. Mm. And we are certainly more than the worst thing you've ever done. And we are certainly more than the worst thing that's happened to us. Mm. And just because... I'm not able to be a part of somebody's story of change doesn't mean that that person can't change further down the road. Mm-hmm. So that has informed a lot of the work I do now. Wow. But also during that year of seminary, there were other big things that <laughs> big I was wrestling things. with. Can you guess what it is? Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Yes. <laughs> I'm coming out. Yes, in yes. Seminary. So you, I mean, sure, you you know you know these stories. Everybody's a little gay in seminary, and <laughs> seminary was the place where I actually, you know, had had lots of different uh, folks who identified as LGBTQ kind of throughout college. And college was a really big space for me, where I realized, okay, I want to. I'm a feminist. I want to be an ally. I care deeply about these things. And seminary was really the first place where I actually got to explore those questions for myself. Mm-hmm. And wasn't just kind of like, oh, well, I'm a part of a tradition that doesn't ordain gay people and doesn't yeah. look gay. So I'm going to be an ally because I can't be gay and also be a Methodist minister. That's <laughs> So seminary was the first place where I was able to admit that I had crushes on women, even if I didn't identify as somebody who was always attracted to Mm. women as much as men uh, or other people. So seminary was the place where I began having those conversations with people who were safe. And that was around... The, my first year of seminary finished in 2016. There was a pretty pivotal United Methodist General Conference at that point. 
And I took a class where I went to the 2016 General Conference for the United Methodist Church. And I saw just, I don't know if you've had other people on this podcast talk about the General Conferences in the United Methodist Church, Midge. Not exactly like that. I've had other Methodist um, guests, but not talking specifically about the General Conference. Yeah. So the thing about the Methodist Church is that it mirrors the United States of America (laughs) and the two developed alongside one another. And so you can you can actually see based on United Methodist history what the United States of America is going to wrestle with next. Wow. United Method or what was a predecessor to the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal, the Episcopal Methodist Church split in the Mm -hmm. 1840s over the topic of slavery Mm. and of course you know less than 20 years later you have the civil war in 2016 at the united methodist general conference you could have predicted the 2016 u.s election based Mm -hmm. on the anger and rage that everybody had towards one another the ways that progressives talk about conservatives, the way that money flowed between different groups and not to other groups, the ways that people talked about folks from the global south versus people from the United States and countries in the global north. And just, it was a mess. And it was this moment where I really felt empowered to be pro LGBTQ in a way that I felt that I had not felt before and a way that I felt I don't care who people love or how people identify in terms of their gender or sexual orientation or whatever like I'm gonna be accepting and loving and affirming and then there's a still small voice in the back of my head as I say these things to myself And that still small voice says, you know, if you're planning on being that way for other people, you might want to offer that to yourself. Mm. So that was the first moment where I realized, oh, I'm I might not be straight. And I think I'm (laughs) where I can admit that. I might not be straight. I might not be straight. (laughs) I love that. I might not be straight. At that point, I'm 26, and that feels a little late to have those revelations. I now know it's not, but it also felt a little like, wow, a lot of other people have been having these conversations for at least 10 years, and Mm -hmm. I'm very new to this, and I don't know what Mm -hmm. to do. So that summer, I began coming out to friends, Mm -hmm. and I began coming out to people who were very involved in a lot of the justice work that I was doing cared a lot about prison reform and abolition work and restorative justice. Uh, I then have my first date with somebody who is, you know, does not identify as male, is not assigned male at birth. And it is one of those moments where I realized, oh yeah, like I have always been attracted to women and people assigned female at birth and people who are broadly queer, and I don't know what to do now. (laughs) Um, So that relationship was a great summer experience and was informative. And um, 
I'm grateful to that relationship. Um, and, and was upset and sad when it ended for lots of different reasons, uh, partially because uh, there was a long distance factor to that uh-huh. relationship. Uh-huh. But also there wasn't a sense of mutuality mm-hmm. in that relationship either. Mm. Um, based on a lot of it based on the distance. Uh-huh. So then I entered the second year of seminary, which is just sad, right? Sad for lots of reasons. Because it's kind of the, if, if you don't deconstruct completely theologically your first year, there's always something in your second year where you're just going to be bummed out about it. You know, and mine happened to be, wow, I'm queer and I'm Methodist and I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah. So I have a very busy year, but I also have a year where I realize I need to start coming out to my family. And so I want to tell you my favorite coming out story. Okay. Uh, for myself. And it, it takes place with my dad. And just for your listeners to know, this is a story that involves hunting. I am a uh, an eclectic human. I love hunting. It's something that I've grown up with. It's part of a, a conservation kind of practice for me. And it also helps me pay attention to our natural world. And so uh, it's, it's something I do. Uh, so if this is not a, a story that you need, you can just forward through the next couple of minutes. And I'm sure Midge will give you some Thank you for that warning. In the podcast. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there we are. Uh, I contain multitudes, as does everybody else. So my second year of seminary, I realized, wow, I really need to, I need to tell my family. So I started coming out to my siblings and I am very close with my father and I decide I need to, I need to come out to my dad. So I decide to come out to him during fall break. I live in South Carolina, so it's hurricane season all the time during fall break. (laughs) And there's a hurricane that's about to barrel through as I'm about to come home and talk to my dad about mm. my my sexual orientation. So I'm thinking there would be a stupid hurricane <laughs> right as I'm about to have a conversation. Of course, it would reflect everything that I feel inside. All yeah, that's I- right. <laughs> You're so, so I go, <laughs> Yes. So I go to uh, my my parents' home. Uh, we have a, a place in in a rural part of South Carolina where we do our hunting and also have some family gatherings and uh, the power goes out in this Mm. this house so a lot of my family decides to pack up and go back to Columbia where there is power and where the house is not flooded and so my dad and I decide we're going to stay out in the country and then we'll go home but we're going to stay out in the country and we're going to go hunting So we are waiting for about maybe an hour or so. The wind is blowing and we're sort of eating boiled peanuts, watching the wind go by as one does (laughs) in South Carolina. And I turn to my dad and I say, hey, dad, can I have a conversation with you? And he says, yeah, sure, Hillary. Yeah, what's up? And, And, you know, proceed to say, this is a serious conversation and, and it needs to be confidential and I am attracted to women and I don't really know what this means vocationally for me. And so I continue talking a little bit more about that and the person that I had dated who I had recently uh, broken up with. So this is sort of another additional layer of, of sadness for me. 
And the first thing out of my dad's mouth after I finished talking is, Hillary, thank you so much for telling me this. Hmm. A, like, I, you know I love you and there's nothing in the world that can, can ever stop that, you know, that could ever, you know, I will always love you. But B, thank you for telling me this because I was worried that whatever happened between your mom and I had robbed you of any ability to love anybody at all. And so it was this moment where I just like, I was able to kind of like set him kind of free in in some ways and just like Uh give him peace. And of course I'm crying my eyes out because, oh my gosh, like this is not what I expected. I didn't, you know, I, I expected like a tense conversation and this was just like loving and accepting and Mm. continue to talk about what that means for me being in South Carolina and potentially ordained in in the conference. And we, we hug it out (laughs) and he's like, do you still want to go hunting? And I said, yes, let's go hunting. (laughs) And so then we get ready to go hunting and we climb in a deer stand and we just like, we tell jokes and we laugh and, (laughs) and then we see this massive eight point deer and boom, I get a trophy animal and my dad is super thrilled. And I'm super thrilled because not only did I have like a great conversation with him, I also like made him really proud with my shooting skills. <laughs> it was and a I'm good like, daughter day. Good daughter yes, day. It was a great daughter day. Like you want to talk about intersectionality right there. Like, oh man, it was so good. Yes. Mm. It was like all the things I loved. And <laughs> yes. And oh my gosh, it was like authenticity at its finest. Mm. Yes. That's an amazing story. That is an amazing story. story. And even this vegan appreciated that story. Yes, yes, absolutely. I understand how scary that was for you, how how absolutely frightening that can be. And and wanting that relationship with your dog your dad to feel that pride in you and to totally respect the person you are. That's just a beautiful story. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so was everyone as embracing as that or did other people in your method? No, (laughs) everybody. I have been really, really fortunate in that I have a lot of people who really love and care for me. Yeah. You. And so I, especially in my, in my family, my, my first family. So my sisters have been great. All of my Mm -hmm. parents have been great. If there are family members who don't like it, they haven't told me and they, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if they'll ever pick a fight with me about that and that's fine. (laughs) Um, so I, you know, the, the next part of this is that I graduate from seminary and I become more assured in kind of my identity. I, I presently identify as, as queer and, uh, and, and then have to become closeted, unfortunately, because I decide that I'm going to serve the local church mm-hmm. in South Carolina because I love it and because I care about it and mm-hmm. because it nurtured me and I want it to nurture other people, too. So I go into a rural community. Um, I won't name the community uh, because I, I'm not far removed from that community. And South Carolina is a small place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I... Um, I go into the small community and I learn the nuances of like, oh my gosh, there's 
queer folks everywhere in this place <laughs> and, and they're you know, very quiet so nice. <laughs> yeah they're so quiet they're like your best neighbors and like they care about you and they care about the church and you know and i was fortunate enough to be around a lot of really healthy people i did not disclose who i was uh because it was not their job to keep my secrets mm-hmm. um and and yeah really wanted to do a lot of work with becoming like accepting and affirming in in country spaces and unfortunately that was not possible because Mm. the pandemic hit Mm. and even though there was nuance in this community um you know the pandemic was a play you know was an experience where nobody was at their best Mm. and there was a lot of fear and frustration and fear and frustration at me because i was really stringent with covid protocol unlike a lot of people around me and unlike mm-hmm. a lot of church leaders around me, which was really sad. Mm-hmm. And it was also a space where when George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor were murdered, I attempted to do some conversations around racial injustice, uh, sometimes from the pulpit, definitely through a virtual book study mm-hmm. um, on the cross and the lynching tree. And it was not well received. And actually of all the things that I tried to do, I did try to have a conversation about human sexuality in 2019 with my with my church community members. And that did not go well. Lost mm-hmm. some people because I disagreed with the 2019 General Conference in the Methodist Church, which mm-hmm. adopted a traditionalist stance uh, through lots of, lots of unhappiness. Mm-hmm. And in COVID times, trying to address racial injustice stuff, that actually created more animosity than talking mm-hmm. about human sexuality, which mm-hmm. is unsurprising, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, m- many communities in South Carolina, especially rural communities, are not honest, have a kind of revisionist history when it comes to, to racism and mm-hmm. race. Um, and, and also it's not really able to be brought up by many black community members because of the ways that they have been silenced and continue to be silenced mm-hmm. if they have differing views from their white neighbors. So because of lots of different factors um, and because I was not able to be myself in my church communities, I left mm-hmm. and I left the local church Um, which was really hard and sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And I spent a year this past year kind of trying to heal from it. Mm -hmm. I did a year of hospital chaplaincy uh, and through there was able to decide how I wanted to come out professionally and publicly, which is what I've done. And it's what I did back in July. So when you had met me, I had only Mm -hmm. been publicly out for less than a week uh, which felt really good um yeah that's kind of my story in a nutshell and I know we sort of like shrink the last few years into a few sentences but yeah um I also want to leave some time for you to ask me any questions that you have oh well when you said your story was something you you were right (laughs) you were right you've been through a long journey and let me just say thank you thank you for using this format using the gay with God podcast to, you know, come out even in a bigger way. 
Um, I was just having a conversation the other day with someone about how, you know, the whole coming out um, has to be a personal experience. And only when that person is ready that, you know, pulling people out of a closet, shaming people out of the closet, you know, is just inappropriate. And the journeys that we take are just so, even though you, when you said you hear all these stories, I do, but but they're also uniquely personal. And it's when we decide to come out, how we decide to come out and why we're doing that. You know, what was the purpose of the coming out? And what I hear in your story is it's all about authenticity and it's all about service. Mm -hmm. How can I serve the best? And for you to, to be bold and to try to get from the pulpit and in your community awareness while you choose to go back into the closet after finally, after all of that time, being able to claim your authenticity, but you did that under service. Mm -hmm. And that was beautiful that you, that you chose to do that and beautiful that you could do that. Um, yeah, I was, <laughs> I, when I, I, when I finally at 30, <laughs> just <laughs> realized that I was gay. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if I could have had that much, of a service heart in me to put someone else first at that point. But I really appreciate that part of your story. So, so where are you now as far as your desire to, to minister and to be of service? Where do you think that's going to, to take you now? Mm -hmm. Um, after, after all of that? Yeah. So that's a great question. I, um, I have the way I'm able to keep my orders and still live in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I have switched conferences. So I used to belong to the South Carolina uh, annual conference, which is the Methodist church in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And now I belong to a conference out West. I belong to the mountain sky conference. Okay. And that is a conference that is affirming and accepting. And I am an extension ministry through the mountain sky conference. Okay. And they are happy to be connected to me and they affirm all of my gifts and graces and talents and uh, have said, you know, we would love to use you however you want to be used in our conference. But we also really respect the fact that you want to be in South Carolina and you feel called to be here because I do. Right. Mm -hmm. South Carolina is a place that has experienced a lot of brain drain. Mm -hmm. And it's a place where I am on my own journey in tackling my own whiteness. It's really easy mm -hmm. to escape your whiteness as a white, you know, it, um, your white Southernness in the United States, if right. you go elsewhere, right. Mm -hmm. You can be around all sorts of other progressive people, but it's so much harder, uh, to, to deal with yourself. And I, I care a lot about that and I'm grateful to be working with people who show me ways that like, yeah, I can, I can do better at tackling that. Um, because I, I work in, Social justice work is rife with a lot of well-meaning white people, yeah. but especially if you're going to do work with prison and prison abolition or criminal justice reform, like you need to be able to tackle a lot of your own self. And it's really easy as a queer person, right, to say that, like, oh, I don't have to do that because I'm marginalized in these other ways, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, Which white fragility not, does live in the yes. LGBTQ community. Yes. So white fragility people. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I also like, I want to be somebody who can be present for queer folks in South Carolina mm -hmm. because 
it is possible to create spaces of belonging here. Mm. And I'm tired of people feeling like they need to go elsewhere to find belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm grateful for the people before me who have, who have, who, who started to create those spaces much, much, you know, way before I, I even came on the scene, right before I was born and all those mm-hmm. things. I, I do want to be connected to the church because queer people have always been connected to the, the church. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a bunch of nonsense to have this idea of, no, like, you can be here, but you can't have the same kinds of freedoms and privileges mm-hmm. that are entitled to straight people. Mm-hmm. It would, the church wouldn't exist were it not for queer people, right? Yes. Let's be real. Yes. Let's be real. Um, and I believe that my voice has a kind of creativity to it that I don't really see in a lot of straight ministers, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, it, obviously, that's a broad generalization, but mm-hmm. I am excited about my faith in a way, and, and and my faith empowers me to to do all sorts of radical things. When when I was doing my ordination project, I did a gun buyback program <laughs> that got national news wow um, you know statewide news certainly but like pete Buttigieg retweeted an article about me wow and i got <laughs> engagement from two democratic presidential nominee campaigns like amy klobuchar and also uh beto o'rourke right like these are things that happened to me wow because i collected 20 guns in my, you know, sort of small town area. And that was really exciting and lovely. Mm-hmm. And I I want to continue to do those kinds of radical things. And I want people to know that it is like my sexual orientation and my my own fear of violence against me that empowers me to want to tackle violence mm-hmm. and empowers me to want to like address suicide rates, which is the whole big reason why I did this this gun buyback program because the suicide rates in South Carolina are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like 90% of suicides are completed with a gun here. We were the only state in the United States that had an increasing suicide rate in the Southeast. Mm. Like, but like in 2019, right? Like um, it's nuts. It Mm -hmm. is completely ridiculous and completely um, unnecessary. We should mm-hmm. not have the worst mental health first <clears throat> capacity in the United States. And everything about who I am informs all of the work I do. It is certainly my faith. It is certainly my sexual orientation. It is certainly the ways that I have been formed and shaped by people who also care about social holiness and personal holiness. I don't know if that answers all of your questions. But <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm friendly to churches, and I want to work with people who want to work with me. And yeah. and I don't care if you're conservative or progressive, but I do care if you're loving and respectful. Um, and there's a lot of common ground. I'm not somebody who's a purist when it comes to um, my 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 politics. You know, I, I care about kindness. I care mm-hmm. about love. I care about doing no harm and doing good and attending to the ordinances of God, right? Participating Mm -hmm. in means of grace, participating in God's unmerited love and the actions that remind us of God's love. Mm. Those are the things that I feel called to do. And I look forward to all the ways that I'm going to be doing that, not just in anti-death penalty work that I do now, but hopefully some 
chaplaincy work with LGBTQ people that I hope to do in the future, and also like whatever kind of faith-based community organizing work people want to do with me. Well, there is absolutely no way that you're not going to be totally busy. <laughs> yeah. Because, because you you are passionate and you will find work. And I know that that God will direct you because, I mean, you've already opened yourself wide open to service. So there's no way that you will not find the niche. And in and, and for you, as for me, sometimes I think, you know, I've, I've called myself a professional hummingbird that I mm-hmm. fly place to place and I do whatever I'm supposed to do in that place, even though I wasn't always aware of it. And with all that you've done, it's like that you have always done good work. You've done the work for good and because you're good and you do it everywhere you go. And it took on a lot of different flavors. I mean, you know, from one thing to another, the social justice was the theme, but it was so diverse. And that's because you are open to serving no matter where you go. And it's always out of love. It's always out of that compassionate heart of wanting to bring loving kindness to the space that you're in, no matter how dark it is. And I really respect that from you. I really do. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, so as we're closing up, although I I say this to a lot of people, but I I especially want to say it right now is I would talk to you forever. (laughs) No, I I feel bad. I kind of took up a lot. No, 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 no. Don't you ever. No, that is the perfect. No, that is the perfect interview when I can have a conversation with someone and it is just that, that I can listen to that story. That's what, that is my jam is to listen to your story as uninterrupted as I possibly can, (laughs) because I love that your story, you know, continued to flow. And, and I appreciate that. So don't ever apologize for that. You have a right to speak your, your story. Um, and, and the, but the final question would be, um, as you struggled, you know, for those years to come out and to own your own identity, especially because of the church constraints, you know, how much sooner would any of us have come out if we hadn't already been condemned to hell or thought of as, you know, not right. Um, What, what would somebody, what could somebody have said to you back in those early days of your struggle that might've made it a little bit more okay to contemplate that I could be gay and queer and, you know, still serve God and still be that minister that I'm thinking that, that I'm supposed to be, what could somebody have said to you that would have made it better? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. That is something that I, I think about a little, a little bit every now and again. And I don't know, in some ways I'm, I'm kind of glad I, I didn't come out Mm -hmm. in high school because I had a lot of a lot of relational trauma within my family that I needed to Mm -hmm. sort. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I had realized, oh my gosh, I'm gay Mm -hmm. on top of all of that, I think it would Mm -hmm. have been really devastating. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't know if that would have been helpful. Mm -hmm. Certainly I do think that there were some relationships and friendships in my life that maybe wouldn't have been harmed if mm-hmm. I had come out earlier, mm-hmm. I think I put a lot of pressure on people to mm-hmm. fix me mm-hmm. or be present for me in ways that I, I didn't know that I wanted them present mm-hmm. to be present for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I think certainly I just want all churches to be accepting and loving. Mm-hmm. And it was the mid 2000s, right? It was in the midst of the Episcopal Church kind of splitting and Gene Robinson making a lot of national news. 
And so that was a, the reaction to Jean Robinson informed a lot of my own theology about human sexuality at that point. Mm-hmm. Because South Carolina is where a lot of really awful kind of relational rifts mm-hmm. happened in the Episcopal Church. Lots of different property suits. The Anglican Church is a very big presence here. And I do think a lot about how that split has has informed the ways that Methodist could have chosen a different Mm -hmm. crowd and still chose not to. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So that is, that's just it. I think Mm -hmm. if my church polity had been much more accepting and affirming, it could have made space for me to to Mm -hmm. be more authentic, but I'm not sure Mm -hmm. the other areas of my life would have reflected that. Right. I, I didn't go to a school where, where people were visibly, queer mm-hmm. or where that was welcomed mm-hmm. either right so right there's that yeah um, you know again things are different now i'm glad things are different now right i i also know that there are lots of circumstances in my life that that kind of guarded against that mm-hmm. and in any case i think i'm okay with coming out as an adult because i think it there were some things that were awkward, but there were lots of things I'm really glad I didn't have to go through. Yeah. I mean, teen <laughs> drama, being queer is way worse. It is so much worse. And I already had it like not great going yeah. you know, with like family trauma, but like, yeah. oh my gosh, like, wow, dodged yeah. a bullet. Totally <laughs> dodged a bullet. Hindsight says, glad oh nobody said anything prophetic to me so that I could yeah. have just been in my own space. But that's really good. That's beautiful because sometimes we we think looking back, oh, if I'd only known all those lost years and I never knew. But, you know, you bring up a good point that sometimes knowing too soon is not always healthy and not always helpful. So yeah. thank you for that. I, I'll quit beating myself up for being a late bloomer. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think another thing, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll end, but one, I mean, I have certainly thought of like, oh my gosh, like all of these like teenage emotions that I now have as this yes. young adult, this yes. is really irritating. <laughs> but also there, I'm, I'm so much more equipped to handle those things. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't make bad decisions. I don't mm-hmm. make rash decisions. I can create rituals to like grieve yeah. for that. Yeah. And I can have therapy that I know that I need to <laughs> deal with that. And yeah, I I and I can react now with the loving relationships I do have, right? And I can mm-hmm. pursue loving and and healthy relationships too, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a real gift of being an adult and and coming out. Oh, good. Yes. Good points. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy that um, that you reached out and you decided to come on the show. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciated this conversation, and I'm I'm happier now that I've I've talked with you today. That that's that's just an amazing journey, and I'm glad that you've come out the other side, and that so many people have been touched by your life mm. for the better. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I want to thank our listeners for coming back each week, supporting and sharing and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And I appreciate you guys as you step up to be guests and become a part of the Gay With God community, because it's through our visibility that other people can find some value in their life and and in their own journey, because they're hearing and resonating with y'all's stories. And it's like, oh, wait, 
that's kind of like me. And then you realize that, you know, you do have a place in the world uh, of authenticity. If you want to uh, connect with Reverend Hillary Moore, you can go to the Gay With God show page at empoweredmidge.podbean.com and you will find that link there where you can look at the, the work that she's doing. And if you are questioning whether you can be gay and be in a relationship with the God of your understanding, if you identify as, the L- as LGBTQIA, God has always been within you, even when you didn't know it, you have always been gay with God. Thank you, everybody. See you next week. Stay tuned to hear how you can join the gay with God community and check out the Facebook group gay with God that is on Facebook. And it's a monthly uh, journey of your faith. How are we doing? And what questions do we still have? And so we would welcome you to join that group. And if you are needing support through your coming out faith journey story, go to the show page at empoweredmidge.podbean.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom and see how you can connect with me. And I'd be glad to serve you guys. Have a wonderful day. Love you. See you next week. I want to invite you to become a part of the Gay With God community. How can you do that? Stay connected by messaging me your thoughts and comments in the comment section under the downloads of the show on the Gay With God show page. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and share, share, share so we can increase our community outreach and be a light to those who are struggling to claim their faith. Consider being a sponsor so I can highlight your service in our community. We are all worthy of respect and a relationship with the God of our understanding. I want to thank you in advance for supporting this podcast. Together, we as a community will keep this show visible and our community stronger. Deep gratitude to my friend Tim McClendon of Tim McClendon Music for allowing me to use an excerpt from Interlude 4 a song found on his CD entitled Sundance.